judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. I think this is the first time that I said it first. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's good to switch it up now and again. Why not? Why not both? Why not both? That doesn't make any sense. I'm delirious. How are you? I'm actually not terrible. I feel like I'm catching up a little bit on school stuff, but um, I was chaotically behind and some of that had to do with Comic-Con and like planning for it. So Comic-Con was amazing. And I definitely... I went into the whole planning for Comic-Con like, I'm never coming to this again. This is so messy. I hate doing all this. And then like Friday, I was like, do you know that? It's like a TikTok trend. And they do the song. It's like, I'm spinning like a ballerina. Do you have any? I definitely have no idea what you're talking about, but the listeners probably do. (laughs) So it's like something horrible is happening. And then like you're in bliss and the song is playing. But like that was basically it. Like I got there on Friday and I was like, I love everything. I love everybody here. You guys are awesome. And then Saturday I was like, I fucking hate it here. (laughs) Because Saturday is just busy and... It's chaos. It, it's a bit of chaos, but I've decided next year I think I'm gonna do a four day pass and like maybe try and sell it. I don't know, but I was so jazzed from Friday that my husband's like, "Oh, I think I might want to try out this Comic Con thing next year." And I was like, "Let's do it. Let's fucking go." So we're gonna go all next year. Maybe we'll both do like he's like, "I'm definitely not going Saturday because he saw me Saturday and was like, yeah, I'm not doing that." Like you are upset (laughs) what i like about the four-day pass is that then you don't feel so guilty if you don't stay the whole day on the day you go because there's a little bit of everything to see like spread out when you see the show floor spread out when you see artist alley Mm -hmm. um and then you also don't risk missing the panels because they don't miss they don't announce the panels until long after you've bought the tickets yeah and so a lot of the guests weren't even updated until like the week of like i got you right Oh, I'll post this because I'm very excited to post it anywhere. Um, I got to meet David Boreanaz, my my second first Hollywood crush, if that makes sense. Second first Hollywood crush? I guess well, I guess he's my second Hollywood crush. My first was Kevin Sorbo from Hercules. Yikes. <laughs> I, uh, listen, I had a history of like problematic men, apparently, but I actually met Kevin Sorbo and he was like super, super sweet. This is way back in like Barnes and Noble days. He wrote a book and I told him that he was my first celebrity crush and he was like very, very nice. He's not as nice on Twitter. I don't know. People are weird. Yeah. Anyway, um, Dave Brand isn't super great anyway. He like cheated on his wife while she was like pregnant. But <laughs> sixth, sixth grade Kim doesn't know about those things. That's true. That's true. He needed to make this happen. And we did. And he was super sweet. And the line for him actually went really smoothly because it was like Friday morning. Mm-hmm. But that happened. That was awesome. There were very good panels. There was um, lots of R.L. Stein panels. I only got to go to one of them because the other one got closed out pretty early, which was sad. But I got to still meet him and he's fantastic fantastic man fantastic writer um so there was lots of really cool things there was the you didn't go to this i went with one of our other friends um 
So Jamie Lee Curtis being interviewed by Drew Barrymore about the final Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. And you went to see uh, some like action Christmas movie with with Sean. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, it's called Violent Night. I think it comes out December 2nd. It's uh, David Harbour. I don't want to spoil anything because I went in completely blind and I thought it was a horror movie and it is not. Okay. It's fantastic. It is so good. It's an action movie. It's, it's very, very good. Five stars highly recommend it when it does come out. Got it. All right. Yes. Uh, I've said uh, me and Theo, I'd need to go watch that movie together since you and John watched it together. (laughs) I was going to say we should do a double date, but you should just, just go on a date with my husband. It's fine. Go. (laughs) Because he was like, this sounds good. I want to see it. And I was like, you can't see it until December. So that was very cool. Like being able to get like an early screening of something. I got an early screening of The Winchesters, which is the new spinoff show for Supernatural. It was only like three days early. So it wasn't a huge thing. But it's, it's just nice to be watching those types of things with a bunch of other fans because the energy is really there. But um, and I think did I mention this last episode that I did a panel at Comic Con? Yes, we were talking about how you were going to do one. How did yeah. it go? I wasn't there because I didn't buy tickets for that day. I'm sorry. That's okay. One of my one of our other mutual friends was there, as well as uh, some of my other online friends, and uh, Sean came and recorded it. We had about fifty or sixty people in the audience. So for an academic panel on a Thursday afternoon, I think it was pretty good. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, we had five people just chatting about like how we use comics, how we use pop culture and all that sort of stuff in in our classrooms. And I didn't talk about big reps as part of it because I don't use that in my class, but I did hand out some cards afterward for the podcast. Yeah, I didn't. I forgot cards the first day and you gave me some and then I didn't talk to anybody on Saturday because everyone was terrible. I did yell at a woman. Um, which now I think I got to tell the whole story. If I said I yelled at her, I don't know. How are we doing? You're fine. Go All for right. it. So there was, there was a, a hiccup on the R.L. Stein autographing line. So a bunch of us got shut out from the, the actual panel. So we went downstairs and we're like, well, I guess we'll be like first in line for the autographing. Right. Makes sense. So we're there and there's like chaos in the autograph section. Like it, it's just madness. Like they had a whole bunch of authors and I don't think that they did, a, the Comic-Con people did a good job of understanding how big of a fan people are reading. Like any author space was was too small for the author. I'm forgetting the woman's name, Diana. Gabaldon. Gabaldon. People were loaded up with like four and five hardcover books. Like their her line was like four lines deep. Yeah, she does Outlander, right? She's the, I think she's the author of the Outlander series and which oh, is also God, on TV. Right. So I just, I just saw the cover in my head. That's how I do books. I'm just like, I don't know who this is. And then I can see the cover in my head, but she had a ton of people. So she had like an overflow line. So like some people from the R.L. Stein line were like, well, his line starts here at two. We can just stand like right here. And we made a line next to their line. And we technically weren't in the way because there were lines on the floor. And this one woman who worked for Comic-Con was like, what is this line? What are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, we're here for R.L. Stein. And she's like, well, R.L. Stein isn't open for five more minutes. And we're like, okay, where do we go? And then she's like, I don't care, but you can't be here because the fire marshal will shut us down. And then like, no one gets anything. 
she's threatening us with fire marshal and like expulsion. So we're like, okay, where do we go? And she's like, anywhere but here. And then there are other people who are just like, but like, we can't go too far because you said five minutes. Like you're going to call this one guy in front of me who was like clearly like the dad of like these children around him. He was like, well, ma'am, what you're saying doesn't make sense because if we like go further away and then you call, all these people are going to come rushing back to you and that's going to be worse, don't you think? I don't care where you go, but you can't be here, blah, 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 blah. And she just starts yelling. So we're all just kind of slowly walking away, but we don't have a place to go. So we're just like, um, I guess take a lap. So we're all like, let's take a lap. And as I'm walking away, she goes over to the other line of people. This one woman is like, are we okay where we are? And the Comic-Con employee says to her, you guys are fine. You're perfect. You're not the problem. And I go, excuse me, like very high up my voice went. And I was like, don't try and villainize us to like get some kind of point across. I know you're just doing your job, but we asked you, where should we stand? Where would you like us to be so we're not in the way? We didn't just run in here like a group of thugs demanding autographs. Like, if you have a place to put us, we will go there. There's no reason to treat us like we're the bad guys in the situation. And she was just like, and then I walked away. And then that dad was like, good, good. (laughs) And then I lost him. And he ended up being, what happened, said what happened was what happened. Like, people rushed the line. And then they were like, okay, go stand by the exit. And then we went to go stand by the exit and they're like, okay, wherever you are, you're, that's the line. So we're like, what? And they're like, the line is four people across. So then we all just ran into this like space and I stood on that line for an hour and a half. <laughs> and then I got to, you know, meet R.L. Stein and he signed um, the first Fear Street book for me. So that was awesome. One of the things I just absolutely love about Comic-Con and it, it can be chaotic, especially on Saturday and, yes. and Sunday is like, I love the cosplays when you see like when you see a cosplay that you're just like, I understand that reference that but it's not like everyone knows. I don't know when you see Spider-Man, everybody knows Spider-Man is Spider-Man. Right. But like when you see someone from a fandom, that's maybe a little more. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I I love it. Like I saw a great uh, Ted Lasso and Beard cosplay. I saw um, a Bruno and Mirabelle cosplaying partners. You know, it was just like I love I love the costumes and such. And, you know, occasionally I'll ask them like, Ooh, can I take your picture? (laughs) I took some pictures. I used to feel very weird about that, but now I'm like, no, you want this. Like you dressed up, you did did a really good job. So it was a really great um, Buffy cosplay. She was like prom Buffy. She had a a class protector award and everything. Um, And then there was a very good Harley Quinn. And I was like, Oh my God, is the jacket hot? And she's like, no, I made it so that it has like vents. And I was like, you made this. Like I was, people are so yeah creative like there was a carry and this woman was just covered and her white dress was covered in blood like people are so so creative and I dressed up on Saturday no one knew who I was until I got to like that final panel um I was Lori from the first Halloween movie so just like blue shirt like high-waisted jeans and then I had like the mask Michael Myers mask and a knife and all day people were kind of just like looking at me and one girl was like are you cosplaying as someone and I was like yeah like I'm also wearing like this blonde wig that's not good like it's clearly not my hair but when I was online for the Halloween panel this guy's staring at me and he just goes you Lori and I was like yeah he's like that's really good he's like I almost didn't recognize it. I was like I'm on your shirt dude and he's like you are on my shirt <laughs> he had like an old <laughs> shirt 
with her in wearing the exact same outfit. And then the girl behind me in line was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, I didn't see anyone dressed like Lori, but I saw so many Michaels. Yeah. But I kind of wanted Jamie Lee to see me as Lori because like no one dressed up as Lori. I just I love that, like, because New York Comic Con is in October, it like it's right before Halloween. And so like everybody, like all the costume stuff is out and it's easy to like get a hold of pieces if you want to add to your cosplay and this and that. So yeah. So no, it's a very, very good gateway to Halloween because I love Halloween. So October is like a very, very fun month. Having my annual Halloween party theme is television. So like you can dress up as anything, but it has to be TV related. So me and my husband's costumes are He's going to be Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, and I'm going to be all the bacon and eggs. All right. All right. <laughs> so we'll share Rochelle photos. We will share photos from that. Yeah. We're going to be Dean and Cass from Supernatural, um, but I no longer own a trench coat, so I did have to go onto my buy nothing list and ask someone if I could borrow one. because I your trench coat? I... I wasn't wearing it anymore and I didn't see that I would like necessarily do more cosplay as him. So I, I think I gave it away in like a donation bag one time. So you were able to get a, a trench coat from your buy nothing group? Yeah. Well, I, I, someone said they have one I can borrow. And so I was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. I also love spooky things. Speaking of spooky things, that was a terrible segue, but that's how we're doing it here. Catch up, everybody. I'm going to be guesting on another podcast called It's a Fandom Thing. So they do, every episode is like just, just a fandom. And this one is going to be the Final Destination series. So that comes out either Wednesday or Friday of this week. So, so either today when this episode comes out or in two days, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. And it's called It's a Fandom Thing. You can get that everywhere you can get this one. If you want to hear me talk about final destination which of course you do because it's spooky season yeah i was just on an episode uh we did guillermo del toro films Ooh. and um you and i were both on an episode earlier early early this year i think like february yeah february mm, that feels so long ago but yeah, yeah. whitney houston mm -hmm. yeah yeah i love being on that podcast it's a lot of fun it is fun and that is one of their like highly rated episodes or like most downloaded like I think it was like number three and I was just like was it us <laughs> <laughs> I like to take the credit but like she's also like Erin is like great like she picks really great guests she picks really great topics like that is a and like I don't it sounds so weird to say, I don't like people are talking to them because I don't like small talk but I like being on that podcast like I like I like everybody there mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I get anxious with small talk but that is a very well, cool environment. It it is, yeah. Once you're kind of comfortable with the the people that you're talking to, and you're like, it, even if you haven't been on an episode with them, if you've listened to other episodes where yeah. they appear, you're like, all right, I got your vibe. But we're we're yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, and I think also like if I if I'm a real big fan of the topic, it's easier. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So before we get into today's episode for ourselves, we do have a listener email that we wanted to share with you all. It wasn't signed, so we're not going to make assumptions based on the email address, but we'll just share with you what they wrote to us and um, let us know what you think. So this is in connection to our previous episode on Eve. And this person writes, 
Eve's story isn't just the origin story of humans and women, but the origin story for the patriarchy itself. Before Judeo-Christianity became the base religion, there were hundreds of others, what we'd call paganism now. And those religions had a common factor. They celebrated women and were led by goddesses. Women led tribes and communities and were celebrated as the heads. How do you cause the fall of the matriarchy? Create religions that are based on one male god, start the origin story of humanity at an evil woman who ruined it for everyone, and make women come from a man. Man can't create life, so they had to literally create an origin story where a woman is created from their rib. It's similar to what they're doing now with forced birth, controlling women starting with their very bodies. Men can't create life and their bitterness is showing. Just saying. Anyway, start of the patriarchy. That's what Eve's story really represents. A great book that delves into this more is Who Cooked the Last Supper? The Women's History of the World by Rosalind Miles. I love this perspective so much. It makes a lot of sense, right? It does, because it's like, oh, these women, they're getting so uppity. Tribes and stuff. You know what? Let's take them all out in one shot. Like, the conspiracy theory that is there, but it's not really conspiracy because it, like, happened. Like, it's it's great and it's tragic. And I really, I I love them for pointing that out. That's so great. And I've also added that book to my, um, my to-read pile. It's it's in mine now too, for sure. I think that'll be a useful tool for us going forward. Oh, for sure. <laughs> this week, we're not doing anything biblically related though, right? We are going into uh, a big topic mm-hmm. and we're going to be discussing women in leadership. Now, we had originally come up with the idea for this topic and then we realized it was just too massive. So we had to narrow it down a bit. So specifically, we'll be discussing women in leadership positions in the workforce. We will cover the history of women in the workforce, particularly in the U.S., including some of the first women in CEO positions. Then we'll consider the role the media plays in perpetuating and breaking stereotypes of women in positions of leadership. Then we'll address words and terms that are often used to describe female leaders in the workplace, how they differ from those used to describe male leaders, and why this matters. Finally, we're going to wrap it up with a conversation about gender inequalities in leadership overall the concept of women's work in corporate jobs and how labels for women in the workforce differ between women of different racial backgrounds. There's going to be a slight trigger warning. There's like a brief mention of sexual harassment because, you know, of course. Because of course. One of the things we like to do with the big topics is, you know, think about has this affected us in any way? And since we're talking about women in the workforce and women in positions of leadership, has that is that something that's affected you in your life? I guess kind of. Like, I mean, I don't have a ton of experience on it, but other than being a woman who works. Um, but I have worked under a lot of women, though. Like, I've seen them completely bust their ass and put in all the work only to have people question, like, their femininity or, like, who's watching their kids. Um, I definitely had more female bosses than male, but the male ones that I can think of have always made me question, like, how they got their job. Like, I've never questioned how any women above me have gotten their job. Like, the men, like, they've done things that have been like, oh, who do you know? Because that's weird behavior. Like, like I've never had to question any of my uh, female bosses. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I also don't really see myself as someone in a, currently in a position of leadership. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I teach, I educate, but, like, Within my work colleagues, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not in that position, right? But I do have to wonder if the way that I've been either praised or criticized for the work I do has 
influence the fact that I'm not in that position. Mm. And and I think I, I'll maybe after we get through all of the information on this, I might have a better way to articulate that. But I will say I really like working for and with other women. Yeah. Like right now, my department chair is a woman and I really, really appreciate the way she deals with the institution as a whole, right? Because it's not just about leading the department and the the professors in the department, but having to deal with that higher institutional nonsense, right? Yeah. But I also see like kind of what you mentioned, that she had to fight her way into the position that she's in. Like you can see the work Mm-hmm. that she had to put in to get there but she refused to take no for an answer and like I'm so glad she did because I'm so thrilled to be working with and for her you know she's she's a badass and I definitely look up to her so let's talk a little bit about the history like how women got into the workforce in the first place but you know we've said it before it war what is it good for women kind of I feel like I should have <laughs> sang that more with the grunts and stuff no we won't do it anyway so the men were away at war and women you know had to pick up the slack they're working in factories this is all happening during world war ii so women saw freedom as it was the first time that their money and survival wasn't tied directly to a man they were able to do it on their own as the war ended most women were laid off and returned home to resume homemaking duties But some stayed and some even sought out new employment opportunities. Some of these women worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. According to the Center for Brooklyn History, Brooklyn Navy Yard allowed many women to keep their job after the men returned and allowed them to apply for other positions that opened up. So these women worked as welders and ship fitters. Life was good because they found something to be passionate about outside of their homes. But of course, there were some downsides, like getting paid less than men, the constant harassment, and unequal access to work facilities. You know, just just the basics. The norm. One woman, Carmen Zuza, worked as an arc welder in 1942. She spoke of training for three months to become a welder and being pretty good at it. But when she and her female co-workers would work on the floor, men would yell at them, go home, you belong in the kitchen. Zuza says they just tried to ignore them or tell them to shut up. But the real revenge was showing up the men by being better at welding than they were. Super side note about the work that they did. So they worked on the ships, but it was considered bad luck for a woman to be aboard a vessel. So they had to build all these pieces in one room while the men worked on the ship, putting it all together. I I just feel like that's like weird and funny because if it's bad luck for them to be on the ship, they built the ship. Like, isn't that super bad luck? It's a loop. It's a loophole. <laughs> I don't know. I made me want to research more about like why why it's bad luck for women to be on ships. But I, I I'm gonna assume I've not researched this. But here's my here's my gut assumption. Okay. Um, a woman on the ship would distract the men from doing the jobs that they had to do, and the boat would crash into an iceberg. <laughs> Is that what happened to the Titanic? There were so many women on that ship. <laughs> Rose! (laughs) (laughs) These women working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard faced other challenges as well. Simple things like, you know, not having a bathroom or a locker room. And all these spaces were made for men. The idea that they might need to accommodate women never crossed anyone's mind. So no space was built for them. Cool, 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 cool. (laughs) Have you ever seen uh, Hidden Figures? Yeah, of course. Of course I have. Absolutely. Actually, 
Yes, I have. And and I've read the book too. Ooh, okay, fancy. <laughs> um, but it makes me think of that where like uh, Chargy Pansen's character is like, I have to go to the bathroom. And it's like, you have to go three buildings away. Mm-hmm. And they're like, where are, why, why aren't you here? And it's like, because my bathroom is three buildings away. Like, it's crazy. It's It kind of feels like that. Like they make these women take like all this time out to do these things instead of just building something for them. And then it's like their fault that they're not there, right? Yeah, uh, no, that was also related to race for her, right? Like there oh, was, no, for sure, that there was, was a, yeah, a a white women's bathroom mm-hmm. that she wasn't allowed in, and yes. so, but had to use the color. There pad. weren't. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm like I think that because we both said we saw Hidden Figures, I was just talking to you, but I forgot that we're recording a podcast and people <laughs> might not have seen Hidden Figures, but yeah, it was racially related why she couldn't use the bathroom. There was mm-hmm. one there, but it wasn't a colored bathroom. Yeah. Ugh. Well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So women, working women also face pushback from the general public, you know, not just in their workplaces. In 1946, for example, a Gallup poll asked people whether married women should work full time outside of the home or not. 82% of people said no. Both men and women voiced their disapproval. So some argue that women lack the mental capacity to hold a job and others were just worried that the American family would fall as the mothers weren't there to raise these children. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. There were also women who just didn't want to work and were worried that they would be forced into it once it became the norm. <sighs> yeah. I mean, honestly, you you see that bit about like both men and women voicing their disapproval. Mm-hmm. Like, that's very real. And like, I can remember in 2016 my grandmother who was like all ready to vote for bernie sanders when it became hillary clinton was like i don't think i can vote for her because i don't think a woman should be president this is my grandmother yeah. and, i mean to be fair she's in her 90s I'll, I'll like cut her a teensy bit of slack but she's still a vote and so i can't cut all that slack you know <laughs> well i worked with a woman who was maybe 60 she was retiring and that was her thing. She was like, well, like, you know how we are when we get our periods. We just like can't think straight. And I was like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't have a period anymore. And then she's like, that's even worse. You know how women are when they're like menopausal. And I was just like, miss. And that's when the internalized misogyny is so real. This woman, I think that was probably the last conversation. She was retiring. Like she was going to be gone the next couple of months. And I was just like, that was the last conversation I had with her. Cause I was just like, I, (laughs) I can't keep talking to you. Like, there's there's no point. Like, you just said something so ridiculous that you are now a person that I just need to say hi and bye to. Like, there's no time to learn more about you. We're good. Yeah. In 1945, members of Congress proposed the Women's Equal Pay Act. And this was to try and combat the extreme pay gap that existed between men and women. The bill failed, uh, but it did bring eyes to the issue, right? So when gender is the only difference... Both parties should be paid equally. Like, I feel like that should just be a given. Yeah, I mean, that's like really, really simple, right? Because why not? You know, by this time, the female labor force expanded by 50% from 1940 to 1945. Yet, like we said before, there was still no equal pay. But the Supreme Court did shoot down a law looking to ban women from certain jobs, uh, jobs that would question their womanhood and morality. One of these jobs was bartending, which I think is very funny. I guess because yeah. you're like, you know, selling the liquor that makes people do bad things. So you're immoral. <laughs> like opening that. up, I'm opening up your shirt. <laughs> like what has happened? What do they think? You know what the problem is? What? The problem is the drunk men. 
Yes, but I wish this was a visual <laughs> podcast because Rebecca just like kind of pulled her shirt back a little bit and I was very confused as to what was happening. Like she it's just like the wenches. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah. That's where I was going with it. <laughs> but you know what? No, let's let's circle back to that because yeah, if it's the drunk men who then go home and do like terrible things or like commit or- crimes because they're drunk, it's the woman's fault for serving them alcohol. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Fair. Cool, cool, cool. Makes sense. Uh, In 1961, President John F. Kennedy created a special commission on the status of women, which just sounds kind of skeevy, but whatever. Uh, Like he just wanted to see what they looked like. (laughs) What's your status? (laughs) She, she. (laughs) DTF. Well, the goal was to research what issues women were facing in the workforce and see what could be done politically. And what did they find? All the discrimination. Mm -hmm. So the research did help. So JFK was able to put the Equal Pay Act into law on June 10th, 1963. The commission was also able to gather information and advice for more fair hiring practices. Just a year later, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, giving women strong protections from employers who were looking to discriminate workers on the basis of sex, race, religion, and national origin. In 1965, more women headed into the workforce as married people got the right to use birth control. Like, that statement just feels so insane to me. Like, I can't imagine having to ask your state, you know, to take the pill. And I get that that has become many people's current realities, but it still blows my mind. But yeah. I digress. Um, well, I think what blows my mind is that they're having to do it again, right? Yeah. Like it was, yeah. Like we already did this, and the, the fact that like men are like in control in this, right? And like a man had to ask, "Hey, can I not get my wife pregnant?" And the government had to be like, "Okay, cool." So like, who's in charge when it comes to these things? Because I thought it was like dudes, like you know. <sighs> Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and I got nothing. It's weird that like, yeah, they they tell us what to do, but like now they're also telling men what to do for for birth control. It's weird. Just pull out. It's is <laughs> not an effective method. You are correct. Don't be spreading misinformation. <laughs> well, I yes, it's true. I was being very sarcastic with that, but in case you're not <laughs> up on my sarcasm quite yet, you yes. just joined us. That was sarcasm. <laughs> With birth control, women were putting off having children and working on their careers. Which, like, good for you. Yeah. By 1967, then-President Lyndon B. Johnson implemented an affirmative action plan. The goal was to provide equal opportunities to minority and women workers. Depending on the size of the company, employers needed to have a plan in place to eliminate unlawful discrimination among applicants but also to undo the damage of prior discrimination, you know. Yeah, so if a company gets any kind of federal federal funding, this applies. Um, We think it's worth mentioning that around this time, when this went into action, there was a 15.2% bump in female employment at federal contractors, but only a 2.2% bump elsewhere. When given the opportunity to hire more women, people didn't, which kind of just proves why they needed the law in the first place. It's also important to note that while people of color have been aided by affirmative action, all the research and data finds that white women in particular have benefited disproportionately from affirmative action. Incidentally, 
Over the years, white women have become some of affirmative action's most passionate opponents. Oh, white women. According to the... I'm sorry. I just... I struggle with the fact that it is happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I doesn't... I wish it surprised me more. According to the 2014 Cooperative Congressional Election Study, nearly 70% of the 20,694 self-identified non-Hispanic white women surveyed either somewhat or strongly opposed affirmative action. Just make it make sense. I wish I could, like, on behalf of white women, <laughs> I wish I could. Not to make you the, the speaker. Spo- I mean, your name is Becky, so <laughs> you were the speaker of the people. Make it make sense. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. <laughs> let's skip ahead. So let's talk about Catherine Graham. In 1972, she became the first female CEO of a Fortune 500 company in America as she took over at the Washington Post. The very first ever female CEO was about 100 years earlier in 1889. Anna Bissell became the boss when her husband died and she took over at Bissell Sweeper Company. I was going to say, it makes me want to buy a new vacuum cleaner. Right? I really hate vacuuming. <laughs> well, we have a Roomba. We have a Roomba that I just learned that you can name, and I named it um, Herb Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> I should name it Ann Bissell. <laughs> yes. For I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change No, that. no. You know what? You shouldn't. Make it be a man who does the vacuuming. <laughs> there you go. Good. Good. I like that. In 1982, women broke another record by receiving a higher number of bachelor's degrees than men. This level of education helped them apply for better and higher paying jobs. By the time the 90s rolled around, women were killing it. A 1995 survey found that nearly half of married women earned at least 50% of their household income. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So following in the footsteps of JFK, President Barack Obama created the White House Council on Women and Girls in 2009. That sounds better than, like, the status of women. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, women were killing it, but there were still issues on the table. There was the wage gap. There was gender inequality. There were things that they needed to research. From this council, we got the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. We spoke about her during our episode on RBG, but in case you missed it, Lily was a woman working for the Goodyear company who found out that she was being paid far less than her male counterparts and filed a complaint of wage discrimination. And a shameless plug for our Patreon right now. If you want to know more about Lily Ledbetter, she is actually next week's Little Reputation episode. So subscribe at the math scientist level uh, to have access to that episode. That's only $5 reduce. That's it. Just a little $5. Anyway, this act, the, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, was signed into action by Obama, and it made it so that workers had protections against pay discrimination allowing individuals who face pay discrimination a way to correct it under federal anti-discrimination laws. Today, about 46.6% of the workforce is female in the United States. We're also more educated. This is largely in part of affirmative action policies and those women who withstood and fought against discrimination. But with all of those women in the workforce, only 5% of the CEOs are women and 19.2% of the corporate leadership team's Team members are female. So clearly we have miles to go. Okay, so let's talk about the media, right? In this section, we're going to discuss how media portrays and responds to women in positions of leadership in the workplace. 
We talked a little bit about World War II in the previous section. So how does this connect with the media? Well, let's discuss one of the most popular icons of the war in the U.S., Rosie the Riveter. We all know her. Even if we don't know the, the name, we've seen the image. Mm-hmm. She is a strong and confident woman with a rolled up sleeve, flexing her bicep and exclaiming, we can do it. We'll definitely share a picture on the Instagram. But yeah. what a good Halloween costume idea. Oh, absolutely. Bandana and like a denim shirt. Mm-hmm. Do it. Someone do it. Someone do it and tag us. Rosie the Riveter served as wartime propaganda. She represented the over 19 million women who went to work during the war. And of those 19 million women, at least 5 million of them were working outside of the home for the first time. The government and the industries of the time declared that these women were key to victory. And the image of Rosie the Riveter helped them sell this idea. The idea of promoting women in the workplace was great, until it wasn't. When the war ended and the men returned, everyone assumed the women would go back where they belonged. But not all of them wanted to. Oops. You let the women in. Yeah. We're like ants. You can't just get rid of us that easily. (laughs) So that was during World War II. But how has the portrayal of women in the workforce and specifically in positions of leadership changed in the last 70 years? Let's take a look at corporate America in the 21st century to get a better idea. So both corporate America and the media play a huge role in if and how companies change their practices and cultures to ensure that more women have the chance to reach the highest level of management. Sure, corporate America, that makes sense. But why the media, right? Well, apparently 76% of U.S. adults trust the information they hear from national news organizations. So journalists have a responsibility to make sure that their tone, the information they share, and even the order of how they present that information reflects all genders equally. This helps prevent contributing to stereotypes that are generally associated with female and male leaders. See? Even saying female first here can make a difference. Mm, Nice. I see what you did there. So the Rockefeller Foundation and the Global Strategy Group recently analyzed how the media covered 20 different CEOs in order to evaluate how both female and male CEOs are discussed in the press. This study included major companies from the Fortune 500, the Fortune Fortune 1000, Fortune 1000? I've never even heard of them before. Fortune Fortune 1000? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's like, there's probably more women once you get past the first 500. Yeah. (laughs) And other groups within the tech industry. The CEOs in question included those that had been hired or appointed from within the company, those who had been publicly fired or had stepped down due to pressure, those who had retired, and those who were involved in a crisis. Not not all four at once, but like all fell into at least one of these categories. Yeah. So 11 of the 20 CEOs were female identifying and nine were male. The study considered over 100 news articles from 37 top tier media outlets and were judged on language, tone, inclusion of specific details such as gender, personal life and job qualifications. The study demonstrated that the media certainly shapes the perceptions of business leaders based on their gender. I mean, we're not surprised, but it's it's good when you have the numbers to back that up, right? For example, articles about female CEOs are more likely to discuss their personal life than those about male CEOs. From the articles that were analyzed in the study, 16% talked about the personal lives of female CEOs and only 8% covered the personal lives of male CEOs. And so getting even more specific, uh, of the articles that discuss the female CEO's personal lives, 78% of them mentioned families. None of the articles studied discussed the families of male CEOs. 
but instead focused on their social lives and their post-career plans. I guess the idea is that figuring out family balance is only a woman's job, right? Like the men don't have to worry about like, does little Timmy have soccer today? You know, exactly. how do you balance? They don't, or they don't, they do probably because families are families, but they're not, no one thinks that that's their main priority. It's not up to mm-hmm. them. Like someone's going to handle that for them. Probably their wife at home, you know? Overall, studies suggest that the majority of Americans, 96% of them, agree that men and women are equally qualified to lead businesses. Within corporation communications, however, the language used differs between male and female CEOs. For example, announcements around male CEOs are more likely to include words such as experience, proven, and business, while those around female CEOs use words like strategic, knowledge, and growth. So I think the words that stand out to me the most that you just said are proven used with male CEOs and growth used with female CEOs, right? Like Mm -hmm. to me, this drives home the disparity and shows how much more female CEOs had to work to get the positions are in. It's not that men didn't need growth and it's not that women haven't proven these things, but the word choice being gendered like that is. Yeah. Like women have to grow into these positions of power. Men just kind of have to prove that they belong there. Yeah. Right. And what happens in times of company crisis, like the performance and coping skills of any CEO in moments of crisis are extremely important. But like, how are their responses framed when considering gender? So research shows that female CEOs are more likely to be blamed as the source of a crisis than male CEOs. And by like a lot, like 80 percent. 80% of the media stories analyzed blamed women, while only 31% blamed men. Yet at the same time, the positive response of a CEO in times of crisis is pretty close, no matter the gender of the CEO. 20% positive response for women and 25% for men. So it's like, okay, they're both doing pretty close to the same, like, like employees think, okay, yeah, in a crisis, they're doing pretty close to one another. But in terms of blaming that's a huge yeah, difference like when you need a scapegoat it's i mean if we if we learned anything from our ease episode the women is woman makes a really good scapegoat so it's going easy peasy it could be anybody i mean we can't give all the credits to the woman but like maybe well according to a report conducted by the economist intelligence unit companies are starting to make progress with corporate gender equality kind of they're, they're at least thinking about it you know they're thinking about it mm-hmm. <laughs> I roll. Anyway, now, of course, we can't give all the credit to the media, traditional or social, but it does seem to stand out as a factor in bringing attention to the issue and encouraging this change. Two thirds of global executives who were surveyed recognize that gender equality in the C-suite is a growing public issue. So side note for those like me who did not know what this was before, the C-suite is an umbrella term for all those corporate chief jobs right ceo coo cfo like all of that i was like c-suite what what nonsense is this I, you can tell i don't work in corporate america <laughs> it just feels like some fancy club i'll never be a part of i'm also like not interested in being a part of it but like i'm also not interested in going to like the 4040 club either but it just seems like very elite i don't i don't want to be part of your little club anyway 71 percent of male respondents and 60 percent of female respondents attribute this change to an increase in media coverage and male executives list it as the number one reason for the increase in gender equality while female executives list it as number two 
Uh, women actually list the growing influence of women in general as number one. So clearly when the media speaks, though, the public listens, you know, but so do corporate executives, at least a little bit. Some of them kind of. Maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. Even over the last decade, the number of global media stories about female CEOs has grown. Back in 2010, Factiva, the Dow Jones news information tool, counted approximately 10,000 stories in the top-tier global English language media about women CEOs. By 2014, that number was over 37,000. This is encouraging, and the changes are taking place on a global scale. This increase in coverage of female CEOs can be seen across all parts of the world. And if you see it, you can be it. I know it's cheesy, but representation is super important. No, it absolutely is. Absolutely. I, I feel like at Comic-Con, I just kept hearing that over and over again. Like I went to a panel on the Dora Milaje and their, how they were portrayed. And it was just like mm -hmm. seeing these girls, these women in these comics gave young girls and women like that. Yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. I see myself. Also, super side note, this was like the blackest Comic-Con I've ever seen. Like, as a young Black nerd, usually I'm used to being like, you know, there's only a handful of, like, POCs there, and there's, like, lots of white people. I saw not just Black people. Like, there were lots of Asian families. There were lots of people of color at this Comic-Con. And, I and like, they were dressed up, and they were, like, families. And I was super impressed. And I was like, is this because of Black Panther? Is this because of, um, what is the one that you watch with the girl? One that I watch with the girl. She's like a Captain Marvel, but she's not. Oh my God, she was just in the Doctor Strange movie. What is her name? Oh, uh, America Marvel? Chavez. Yes, America Chavez. Yeah, there were a lot of Latino women with the America Chavez like denim jacket on. It was really mm -hmm. awesome to see. And um, what is that other one? From Encanto. Yes, I saw lots of Encanto. I saw a, this was cool. It was a Louisa, but with Wonder Woman like apron like type thing yes i was like that's all like it took me a second and i was like that's awesome but there were lots of people of color at this comic-con and it was really awesome to see and they leaned into like the cosplay and i don't know i feel like for the longest time it was like oh that's like nerdy white people stuff and like now it's not anymore because like you can see yourself in it like it's for you like it's always been for you but now it's like more so for you like i guess it's like allowed if you will air quotes like it was just very, very cool to see. Like, I was very happy to see so many people of color there. Yeah. Honestly, well, going back to uh, talking about the leadership in corporations, because you know we can do a good tangent. Yes. We, lo we love a good <laughs> tangent. Uh, but bringing us back, it, I think all of this really boils down to the fact that corporations don't have a choice but to work towards greater gender equality, right? Like, the media is not going to let this one go, nor should they. So now we just have to see which companies will actually make the changes and which will kind of lag behind, right? There's a great Twitter account. I think it's actually based out of the UK. Uh, it calls out pay disparity in workplaces. It's the gender pay gap bot. Uh, their Twitter handle is at pay gap app. And, and this is just like, it's a great account to follow if you just want to see, like, a, they did this during Women's History Month. They were like, oh, a, a corporation or an organization would put out an announcement about like, we're here for women, blah, blah, blah. And then this bot would come through and say, the pay disparity between men and women is X percentage, right? They were so, like, um, let's see if you're really about what you're about. Mm -hmm, <laughs> Which I yeah. really do like. 
the bot's doing its thing. However, there are still issues with how women are covered in the media. The Commission on the Status of Women found that women only make up 24% of those voices who are heard or seen in the media. And of that group, 46% of the news stories about women reinforce gender stereotypes, while only 4% of them challenge it. And think about experts. The experts who are being interviewed by the media, only one in five are women. Yeah. I mean, I like to think that it's because women know that like pundits are nonsense, but <laughs> but it's I think a lot of it is them being astronaut, right? If they're not asked, then they're not there. I thought you said astronauts. I was like, because they're busy in space. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> I was like, astronauts. Yeah, but I mean, like, even if like pundits are stupid and like talking heads, like sometimes don't work. I think the label of like, we have this expert here on vaccines. It's Dr. Barbara Shepard. Like, that's kind of impressive. Like, there's a woman telling me about this. Like, even just, mm -hmm. it sounds mean to get like the, the low-hanging fruit of people who would just be like, women don't know anything because of menopause. Like, you see people and you're like, oh, this woman said something really interesting. That made sense to me. Maybe there's another woman who might say something else interesting. Like, I feel like that's how you get to change very stubborn people's mind like you just have to like keep putting it in front of them until mm -hmm. it becomes normal yeah i mean and the media they're the ones who are going to help do this right they certainly play a role in achieving gender equality in society but they also need to do the work themselves right they need to create content that breaks gender stereotypes and challenges traditional and cultural norms so how can they do that I mean, exactly all the things you were just saying, right? Show women in leadership roles, show women as experts on a wide array of topics, show women as the rule and not as an exception to it. Yes. Gender inequality in the workplace is one of the biggest issues facing not just corporate America, but all of working America today, right? In corporate America, women hold only 4% of leadership positions at Fortune 500 companies. And one in four Americans say that there are no women in leadership positions at their current job. Like, wow. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. I So I think about like, there's a lot in my current job and most of my bosses have been women. And I wonder if that's, depends on what work you do Possibly. you know like in education are there more women in education are there more women in like retail like maybe I, I would love to know how that data compares yeah year end and from other countries around the world like that would be really interesting like what is causing the discrepancy so like according to that study by the rockefeller foundation nine in ten americans say that the that the traditional expectation for male leadership is the biggest factor in contributing to a women's lack of representation in those top positions the workplace needs to make this a priority and this study that we are referencing here suggests that only 34% of Americans think that their current workplace makes women in leadership positions a priority. We talked about the increased awareness and the need for gender equality, but the truth is that corporations are not doing enough to ensure that changes are taking place, especially at the C-suite level. Yeah, sure. 78% of companies report that gender diversity is a top priority for the for their CEO, but less than half of those employees think that enough is actually being done to make those changes. But this is just an employee perception, right? That can't match up with what's actually happening. Ha. In 2015, so seven years ago, 90% mm -hmm. 90, 90 of new CEOs were promoted or hired 
from roles with executive roles that dealt with monitoring income and expenses. So like positions of like a little bit less power in the companies, right? Mm -hmm. Guess how many were men? All of them. All of them. Typical. And what about the words that we use to describe men and women in the workforce? The characteristics assigned to them, is that equitable? Let's take a look. According to the Harvard Business Review, the most commonly used positive term for men in position of leadership is analytical. For women, that word is compassionate. <sighs> We're not here to be your mommies. Exactly. <laughs> On the other end of things, though, the most commonly used negative word for describing men is arrogant. For women, that word is inept. Mm, I hate that. Yeah. And it's funny because like you think, oh, a negative word is a negative word, but there's so much baggage that comes with that word. And especially when you associate it with gender, it could get more negative. <laughs> <laughs> the same study shows that even though objectively the job performances of men and women were the same overall, the use of these terms used to describe women and men were quite different from one another. Basically, higher use of negative terms for women and lower number of positive terms used for them as compared with those of their male counterparts. So men are often described as analytical, competent, athletic, and dependable. Women are said to be compassionate, enthusiastic, energetic, and organized. I'm sorry, why do we care about athletic? Like, as a CEO, I need my CEO to be athletic. Like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> for that corporate softball team, woo! Your boss should be like the quarterback. He's athletic, he's a leader. Like, that's what I think of. I think of some dude in like a letterman's jacket that everybody looks up to, and like, he also happens to be your boss. Like, I think those are the same. Listen, You're so right, but it's, like, making I, me nauseous. <laughs> I feel like most people's, like, their thought concepts on stuff like this is, like, stuff from high school, right? And you have your woman who's being described as, like, the sweet cheerleader. She's energetic. She's enthusiastic. You know, she's there to cheer everybody on. But meanwhile, the boss is the one taking the football to the end zone. Line, the end, end zone. zone. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is she going to be able to get this football to her? I know sports. Sports, sports, sports. Then you do your end zone dance. Yes. You made a touchdown. I know sports. See, you definitely do. I got it. I got it. Like energetic, organized. None of those are inherently negative words, but there are implications behind them that imply that women are not as well suited for those leadership positions. They're not getting the ball to the end zone. They're standing on the sideline enthusiastically and energetically cheering you on and then they're organizing snacks afterwards I, I honestly that analogy is a fantastic one i think it works so well i'm the letterman jacket <laughs> <laughs> i'll be your cheerleader oh. anybody who knows us is just like <laughs> rolling their eyes at the yeah. concept of you being the athlete and me being the cheerleader or even honestly, vice versa. I don't think it works <laughs> either way. Yeah, no, I know why. I'm, because we're a team. We're a team, yes. and we both bring something to the table. We're both contributing. There's no one cheerleader. There's no one mm -hmm. leader. We're both doing both. Ugh. Soapbox break. <laughs> In terms of negative traits, there are so many more that come up when describing women than there are for men. Men in positions of leadership have been described as arrogant, as we mentioned, but also irresponsible. Women, on the other hand, 
have a much longer list of words. They get words like inept, like we said, but also frivolous, gossip, excitable, scattered, temperamental, panicky, and indecisive. Like two words versus like a whole laundry list of them and like irresponsible. Eh. I don't, but panicky, ah. panicky, panicky and excitable are getting to me because that's like calm down. And it's like, I'm not upset. I wasn't upset. Oh. You told me to calm down. Like that's always the thing. Like, no, oh, there's no reason to get panicky. No one's getting panicky, sir. Like, <laughs> it's up. Have you been told by a man to like calm down when you were just speaking in like a normal tone and they could mm-hmm. sense emotion on you? And it was like, whoa, she's getting panicky or excitable. Calm I'm down. Gonna, I'm going to trigger one of our listeners right now. Uh, <laughs> Ashley, uh, the word that gets to her, if you tell her to relax, Ooh. she will just lose it on you. She Don't tell me to relax. Yeah. <laughs> And you know what? But that ties in with that panicky and excitable thing, right? I mean, you just let me process it the way that I need to process it. Let me do my job the way it needs to be done. I'm just trying to think about like any woman that I've worked with or who being panicky. (laughs) I've never seen that in that like the women that I've worked with have been so stoic. And so like there's this thing that my current boss says, oh, my God, I'm going to mess it up. Um, It's like be a swan. Where, like, your legs are doing, like, all the work under the water to, like, propel you, but you're just, like, gliding above the water. And, like, my current boss is great. Like, I, I, I really like my job, and I like everybody there. They're awesome. But um, I've never, I would never think to call her panicky. Mm-hmm. I've never seen her in, in a moment of, I think that's what makes a really great female boss. And I would love to know who this panicky chick was that they were, like, we need to describe all women as panicky because mm-hmm. like this one woman panicked about something. And you know what? She was probably, she was probably right to like something crazy must've happened, you know? Cause I feel like women are like pretty stoic, especially in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think what you were saying about the swan too, like that doubles down when you're talking about women of color in these positions mm. of leadership, right? They have yeah. to be extra stoic. One like stoic swan. Well, you know the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? hmm Yeah. Well, fuck that. <laughs> because words have deeper real-life implications than we may initially realize, and this is especially true in the workplace. Yeah. So language and performance evaluations is a telltale sign of what is valued and what is not in the workplace. And employees pick up on this, and it influences to what degree they might pursue promotions or even just staying at a company or an organization. Yeah. And speaking of feedback, some studies have shown that women are more likely to receive vague feedback that is unrelated to outcomes. Mm. This is a disadvantage for women who are going up against men for specific job opportunities, promotions and rewards, and is a disservice for women's professional growth and professional identities. Women are also more likely to receive conflicting feedback as well. For example, they might be told that they are bossy or aggressive, but then also that they need to be more confident and assertive. Like, what? Yeah. Like, you you can't be both. Mm-mm. Why not both does not work here? No, you need to make that make sense. Exactly. Feedback for women whose work is collaborative often suggests that perhaps they're less competent because, you know, they have to work with others, so mm-hmm. they can't do it by themselves. Uh, unless, of course, they are competent. Then they hear things like that they're cold and unlikable. So, like, literally, we cannot win. The ironic thing is that the study suggests that employees and coworkers 
most appreciate leaders who are compassionate. The exact feedback women leaders receive in their evaluations. So, like, why doesn't this translate into more female leaders? Well, it's one thing to describe an ideal leader and another thing to describe the performance of a real-life individual without being influenced by gender stereotypes or stereotypes about what a leader should be. Mm-hmm. Patriarchal societal beliefs about gender roles and leadership lead most people to to picture a male leader when asked to picture a leader in general. Like, I know I've done this a number of times and I hate it every time I realize that, that that's my default because we've been so conditioned yeah. to to think of that way. If I say doctor, what do you picture? You know, if I say business person, what do you picture? Right. Like yeah. those kind of things. President. Gross. But it it happens. Yeah. No, I'm like, I just did it like three times in my head. Like, I get exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. Like and and it's that initial thought. But we need to reframe it before we let it out mm-hmm. of our out into the world. Or we need to like see it in the world more often so that you don't think that. So that our brains get reframed yeah. <laughs> themselves. Yeah. I know. Like, so like back to like TikTok for a hot second. I keep getting female fire people. I don't know where they're coming from, but I was walking home the other day from getting my hair braided. You, there was like one woman who someone said something nasty to her and I commented. Someone was like, oh, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, people are going to want a male fireman. And then it was like a picture of her like dragging like some dude double her weight like across a room. Like she's very, very strong. And it was like, I could do this. And like, if there was an emergency, you're not going to care who comes, dummy. So like I commented. So I think that's why I'm now getting stuff. Um, and the other day I walked past a uh, fire department and there were like two lady fire people like rigging, like doing something on the truck. And I was like, there are two of you in there? That's impressive. I don't think I've ever seen a woman fire person. And even like saying fire person and not automatically saying firemen is like, like my brain has to like mm-hmm. fix it. Cause I'm like firemen, no fire people or fire person, because like there are women that do that job. And there were two of them at this place. And I was just like, what? I was so impressed, but like, that's not something you see. I'm like, maybe if I see it more, it'll be easier to just be like fire person, like without even thinking. I, I would go with firefighter, I think, because I do think fire person is like, oh, it, it is. It's not a word that we're as familiar with, yeah. but I think we need to normalize it, you know, yeah. so I would go. I, I could maybe transition to firefighter quicker, but I yeah. like fire person because it it's very inclusive as yeah. well. I, I feel like it is awkward to say so firefighter is probably better, but there are women firefighters. And I think that's awesome. And exactly. there's two in this one precinct and if something happens to me they're gonna be the ones that come because it's the closest to me so Mm -hmm. if i have to meet you ladies i'd be excited to and i'm sure you could lift me research suggests that while we're not there yet things are changing like millennials don't just want gender balance they expect it they expect the firefighters Mm -hmm. they're in the demographic that most expects to find representation in leadership specifically in the c-suite within the next decade One study we looked at for this podcast reports that 84% of millennials anticipate equal representation in the C-suite by 2030. Compare this to Gen X, where only 74% expect this will happen, and boomers, where 66% think it'll happen. There there wasn't any data in this study on Gen Z, but my guess is that they would be even closer to 100% than even millennials. Like Their expectations are high, and I'm here for it. I feel like Gen Z is like will we have buildings like they'll just be happy to to have some structures that exist <laughs> but i'm surprised that number for boomers is so high 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good. It's good. It is good. But also 2030, geez. I mean, that's only that's only like seven and a half years away. That feels like, I mean, <laughs> what, I want my representation and I want it now. Like, that feels so long, like seven years. Like, oh, that feels like a long time. We've talked about the history. We've talked about, you know, the sort of lived experience now in the 21st century in corporate America. Well, let's talk about the impact that this sort of inequality in the workforce, especially when it comes to leadership, has on women. So we said that, like, there's only 4% of women in, like, the C-suite right now. So, like, that means that, like, all these women that are there are the only one in their departments, probably. So being the only woman is not a rare occurrence. So one in five women have been or currently are the only woman on their team. You tend to see this more as you climb up the ladder, like we said, to the C-suite. 40% of women in senior level roles have been the only ones there. Being the only woman on a team or in an office can have upsides and downsides. One upside is that you're memorable, right? You stand out and therefore you might get more focus and spotlight. Uh, It reminds me of that little Disney Pixar film uh, called Pearl. Oh, I didn't watch that yet. I did save it, but I didn't watch it. Like it's yeah. on YouTube or something. Yeah. It's about this little ball of yarn who goes to work in corporate America. And when she gets there, it's an office full of like human men in suits and they all look, you know, pretty similar mm-hmm. in terms of like their clothing is all identical. And she walks in and they just kind of like give her a look like, oh, who are you? And you don't belong in X, Y, and C. And she actually goes through all these steps of trying to pretend that she is. Like she fits in. So she like re knits herself to look more like them and like okay. gives herself a little suit and everything. So she stood out, but like she was kind of ostracized for it until she tried to blend in. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the film, another little ball of yarn comes to work there. And at first she thinks about dismissing her because, well, this is her position and mm-hmm. and she's figured out how to fit in. But she realizes that she doesn't want to be that that ball of yarn and she wants to help the other one fit in. And she goes back to being the way she was originally and stop pretending to to be mm-hmm. like the men. It's really cute. Mm. Yeah, getting the spotlight might be good, but it might not be, right? Because what that spotlight may, like the baggage that that comes with might not be so positive. And you can also end up being the the token Mm -hmm. So being the token person means that you're there for the sake of appearances. Your role could be like simply symbolic. Even if this is not the case, it might be the first thing on people's minds when they meet you. Tokenism can lead people to think that your wins or your losses aren't one-offs, but a representation of your identity. She wasn't able to close the deal. Oh, she must have been being too aggressive. Oh, she did close the deal? Well, the clients must have thought that she was really hot. (sighs) Mm -hmm. yeah the downside to being the only woman in the workplace setting is dealing with feeling othered your co-workers might not understand how to relate to you and include you and this can leave you feeling isolated according to a case study done by leanin.org over 80 percent of women are on the receiving end of microaggressions they're also more likely to have their abilities challenged to be subjected to unprofessional and demeaning remarks, and to feel like they cannot talk about their personal lives at work. Most notably, women onlys are twice more likely to have been sexually harassed at some point in their careers. 
This only one status leaves women feeling like they're walking on a tightrope, especially when voicing an opinion or an idea. Women are usually spoken over in meetings, leading women to either sit and listen and be judged as someone with no ideas or speak up and be seen as too aggressive or bullish. What's the solution, though? Well, more women, of course. Let's even out these rooms. Currently, women are dramatically outnumbered in senior leadership. Like we said, one out of five women hold the position within the C-suite. And when you look at women of color, that number drops to one in 25. Yikes. So let's talk a little bit about like what women are doing in these spaces, like what what they're allowed to be doing. So when it comes to the workload in the workplace, women help more, but benefit less from it. So gender stereotypes help to feed into the expectations that men will be ambitious and get results while women will be nurturing and take care. In most current day offices, women usually get stuck with what's called office housework. So think- No, yeah, that groan, that groan of like, oh, I've done this. <laughs> so I think note taker, uh, reporting, being the mentor or training new hires, being on a committee or organizing office events. When it comes to women on their way to becoming part of that C-suite, your office housework starts to look a little different. It becomes more emotional. Women leaders are doing more to help their staff navigate work-life challenges, balance workloads, and make time to check on their staff's well-being and look for signs of burnout. The work requires a bit of nurture and falls outside of the traditional job responsibilities. Senior level women are twice as likely as senior level men to dedicate time to these tasks. Looking at this through the lens of having an inclusive and diverse workplace, women leaders are putting the work in and showing up more as allies to people of color. They are more likely than men to educate themselves about the challenges that women of color face at work or to speak out against discrimination and to mentor or sponsor women of color. So my friend's mom works in education and she just like flew to, this is a couple of months ago, she went to Seattle to go to this um, diversity like weekend workshop and like her, her job paid for it and everything. But like, I think about that, like how, I wonder how many dudes were at this thing, like she went and was like, this is, I would like to have a more diverse workplace. I want to be able to speak. She's a white woman. She wants to be able to speak to students of color and like employees of color. And she took the weekend out to go do to the, do this workshop thing. And I do wonder how many other people are doing that. How many men are doing that versus women? And, and how many white men? Yeah. Like, I want to, I want to double down on that because I, like I work in a black and Latino studies department and most of my colleagues are black or afro latino and they do put in the work mm. i see them put in the work but that's what they specialize in and yeah. that's their lived experience so you know like you said for a, a white female boss to go out and do this like yeah how do we see any white male bosses yeah, do because that? The, the the idea of like making the workplace more diverse and inclusive like shouldn't be on the brown people to do it should be on the others in the office and I do wonder and I'm not saying that they're not doing this it's just something to think about like how many other how many male white male employees would be willing to go sit in a room for a weekend and maybe be told how they might be failing you know like that doesn't seem like something that uh they would sign up for like something they may have to go to but it doesn't seem like like this woman who signed up for it like signed up for it like contacted her employment and was like, I want to go to this. Like, I think women would be more likely to seek these things out than men would be. 
It'd be interesting to know if you are a man who listens to this and um, you want to, and you have attended one of these, let us know. <laughs> and, and it's not like doing these things, this, this sort of emotional labor isn't important. It's not, it's not that it's not good or helpful. Right. And sometimes certain things can even be fun and worthwhile, but they are also low promotability tasks like they're not going to show that you can lead a team and should be promoted. Can you put the cheese and wine out? Great. Can you be a CEO? Not related, right? No one took notes so well that they were like, yeah, now you should be the CEO next, mm-hmm. right? Like, So the high promotability tasks are what will keep you on the radar when it comes to promotions and salary raises. These are things like presentations to clients, being the lead on a committee or a campaign, writing proposals, things that like get you seen by like the big wigs, if you will. Mm-hmm. When women spend more time than men on quote unquote office housework or emotional work, they have less time for these high promotability tasks. They're also not presented with opportunities to present themselves in a in a more strong forward presenting manner, right? Mm-hmm. This all means that their progress within these organizations will move more slowly. If at all. Yeah. I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling very triggered by this whole section. <laughs> if women do manage to make it into a position of power, more than likely they'll end up with some gendered stereotypical label, right? The patriarchy has made it the norm for men to be the ones in the positions of power, making women who rise to that role automatically seem masculine. According to an article written by Michelle Penelope King for LinkedIn, often senior women leaders must adopt more masculine behaviors to be seen as leader-like, like being dominant, assertive, and aggressive, even though engaging in these behaviors will make women less likable. They are violating the gender stereotypical standards society holds for how women are meant to behave, like being meek, mild, and nurturing. Unfortunately, both options can be a lose-lose for women leaders, which results in their being typecast and labeled according to a gender stereotype. This can include describing women leaders as soft but nice or bitchy but competent. Typecasting matters because it distorts people's perceptions of women, which limits how they are perceived as leaders. Not always, but most times women will be labeled as a bitch, right? If they're too assertive or too competent. Both traits are great in men, but for women, you're a bitch who loves the sound of her own voice. (laughs) As we say, as we podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Couple of bitches podcasting. (laughs) All right. No, uh, but women can be seen as like an ice queen or a queen bee if, if you're not chatty and close with your staff. The queen bee label is used to describe women who do not support other women at work. But if you are friendly and personal with your staff, then you're too friendly and you're gossipy, and you're unprofessional. I feel like the Queen Bee label can be directed back to what we talked about last week with female rappers. Like, the idea that there can only be one woman in this space. The Queen Bee might isolate herself from others because if there can only be one strong female leader in the office, then every other woman becomes competition. Like, you can't work or collaborate. There can only be one, and I have to destroy you. Mm. Now let's, let's talk about the hot boss or the femme fatale effect, as it was called by the researchers at Washington State University, who did a study on attractiveness in the workplace. I kind of wonder why they did that study, but I'm here for it. It got good results. According to Leah Shepard, um, an assistant professor at Washington State University and a lead authority on the study, 
highly attractive women can be perceived as dangerous. Batman is when we are assessing things like how much we trust them and whether we believe what they are saying is truthful. Those deep-rooted evolutionary instincts can spill over to the workplace, prompting feelings of jealousy and also suspicion from both women and men that the attractive woman has used her sexuality to get promotions, favorable work assignments, etc., says Shepard. So if you happen to be a beautiful ice queen, you're going to have a hard time relating to your staff and getting them to trust you. I mean, honestly, this idea and this label, it's so harmful. Mm-hmm. Ah. Like, why do like, I get so why do I get so frustrated when we do these episodes? Like, it's just so infuriating. Because, like you, you can you can pinpoint like that made me pinpoint. There was, I'll do this loosely, but when we worked at Barnes and Noble, there was a manager who came on, and she was fucking gorgeous. She was absolutely beautiful. Everyone hated her. They said she was stupid. They said she was flighty, and she was smart. She was very smart, but she didn't work as hard as she needed to because I think she knew that people thought she was stupid. She was strategic about how she handled like the workload for the day. But people still thought that she was dumb. We had good sales underneath her, but people were just like, have you seen her boobs? She had a boob job. She's dumb. She's just a dumb girl with big boobs. And it didn't make any sense. And it was it was exactly this. It was like, well, how did she get this job? She must have slept with somebody, right? Like, that's always the assumption. But sleeps with someone to be like an assistant manager at Barnes and Nobles. Like, are you kidding? Like, it was just really ridiculous the way that she was treated. And she ended up leaving. But like, I could absolutely see, like, I can pinpoint a person for this. And that's why it's so triggering, why it's so upsetting, because we've seen it. Yeah. And like, she was really nice. And there was like no reason for her to be so disliked. But she was because she was hot. And that's so stupid. So these labels are sexist, flat out. Like, what would the male equivalent of a queen bee be? You know, just a comp- just a competitive businessman, right? Like, businessman about his business. <sighs> so fush- It's very frustrating. And so while these labels are terrible, if you add in race, it, like, doesn't get any better. It just no. makes it more terrible or... <laughs> <laughs> In a study done by the Leadership Quarterly in 2016, it was found that white women were mostly labeled as being arrogant, rich, and ditzy, meaning that they're confident, but too ditzy to be a leader. Black women got got the labels of having an attitude, being loud, confident, and assertive. Some of those words sound perfect for a leadership role, but the attitude and loudness makes you unlikable. In the same study, people viewed Asian women as intelligent, quiet, shy, and distinctly not aggressive. This frequently leaves Asian women out of the running for jobs requiring leadership. And did it even discuss Latino women? No. Okay. Good, 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 good. Love it. They're not even in the conversation. I'm like, I would have absolutely put that in. I thought that was weird too. Like, I assumed you would have. So that's why I was like, they had to have left it out. Yeah. These labels are not only rude, they're harmful. And they're going to slow down the progress of women leaders. A woman might not get a position that they were perfectly suited for because someone has a vision in their head of what these women should be versus who they actually are. Further damage of these labels can evolve when it comes to reporting and issues. Say you're being harassed, mistreated, or overworked in the workplace. Are you likely to report it if you're already perceived as angry or ditzy or shy? Would you be worried about being believed? Would you be worried about being fired? Depending on the makeup of your workplace, maybe. I mean, we spoke about this in our Anita Hill episode, but lots of people don't report workplace harassment and perception has a lot to do with it. All right. So final thoughts, takeaways. 
women should be running everything, like everything, like fire all the men and hire women, replace everybody. No, like they shouldn't. They should be running most things, um, but they should be giving the opportunity to rise to like levels of greatness like men. It honestly makes me think back to all of the times, though, like I mentioned this earlier in the episode, there were certain moments that were a bit triggering for me, right? Because especially in grad school, I took on a lot of service roles and responsibilities. And this took time away from me, like doing research and publications. So like, did I fail myself in these instances? Did I like fall into that trope unknowingly? Yes, I absolutely did. And is is that connected to like my struggles in finding a a full-time position now? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can't say with certainty, but I feel like it didn't help things. Right. And it's not like, you know, I do, as you said, these things can be fun. Mm -hmm. Like, oh yeah. Like we're having a social gathering. I like to like plan out the, like the cheese plates and the wine and like blah, blah, blah. But if I'm the only one doing this and I'm the one doing it time and time again, then other people are moving ahead when I'm using this time for snacks. Yeah. And I love a good snack, but. (laughs) It shouldn't affect your career, that good snack. It shouldn't put you back, you know, years because you don't have time to work on things that might make you a good candidate to promote because, you know, you were, I wonder what cheese would work with this wine, you know, like. Exactly. You shouldn't have to. This is the, this is not a why not both. No, this is a why not both situation. Like it should be, everyone has, sometimes the men need to man the cheese table as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So if you want to know more about some of the sources that we discussed in our episode today, we've got references and resources for you. The Fix, Overcoming the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work by Michelle P. King. Madam CEO, Get Me a Coffee by Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg for the New York Times. Does the media influence how we perceive women in leadership? This is a study that was put out by the Rockefeller Foundation. And different words we use to describe male and female leaders by David G. Smith, Judith E. Rosenstein, and Margaret C. Nikolov. And that was uh, conducted or that was published in the Harvard Business Review. So let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything to add onto the conversation that we might have left out? Or do you have any suggestions for women we should cover in the future or topics we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and include your thoughts in an, in an episode like we did with the listener email we received earlier. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, your girl bosses. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase. And remember, we've got a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash Big Reputations pod or just check out the link in our Linktree. Whether you pledge 2 or $5, you will get a shout out in our episodes. And if you choose the $5 level, you will have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes, short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. In our next episode, we'll be discussing, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, Lily Ledbetter. All right, well, let's wrap up this episode today. Kim, what quote do you have for us this time? Leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that the impact lasts in your absence. And that's by Sheryl Sandberg. And as always, 
believe women. April 14th in 1938 in Alabama to Edna and J.C. McDaniel. Ledbetter was born in a house with no running water or electricity in the small town of Possum Trot, Alabama. Oh my god, I have a story. I saw a possum today. (laughs) I saw a possum in Brooklyn today. This possum was by my grocery store and it was like hanging on a railing and there's a door right there and this guy started to come out of the door because it's where they get like their milk deliveries.